We will now turn to the book of Acts, chapters 6 through 8. 6 through 8. We're going to read all of 6 and then a few verses from 7 and 8 as well. So let's begin hearing the Word of God from Acts 6. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the same pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. And a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and of them Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses. And against God, and they stirred up the people, and the elders, and the scribes, and came upon him, and caught him, and brought him to the council, and set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place, and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Then said the high priest, Are these things so? And he said, Men and brethren and fathers, hearken. The glory of God appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Charon, and said unto him, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred, and come into the land which I shall show thee. And then Stephen goes on from verse 4 all the way through verse 60, or all the way through verse 53, rather, uh, giving the history of Israel and doing what we might call today apologetics, giving a defense of the gospel, that Christianity is superior to Judaism and to their customs. And I'm going to pick up here at verse 51 and read through 
chapter 8, verse 2. 751. Ye stiff-necked, so this is the conclusion of Stephen's long address. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them, which showed before of the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God in Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. May God bless the reading of His Word and the sermon this morning, which will be about the life and the testimony of Stephen as a post-Pentecostal message. And in coming weeks, in June, the Lord willing, I hope to get back to the Gospel of, of Mark. Dear church family, Monday, as you know, marks Memorial Day, a national observance first known as Decoration Day. The first Memorial Day was observed on May 30, 1868, at the order of General John Logan, commander of the Grand Army of the Republic. Flowers were placed on the graves of Union and Confederate soldiers at Arlington National Cemetery. Initially, that holiday was designed to remember those who fell in the brutal, bloody battles of our civil war. But later on, that was extended to remember all those in the service of this nation who paid the ultimate price in any war. And since 1948, the 3rd U.S. Infantry Regiment has placed flags at more than 200,000 gravestones annually at Arlington National Cemetery out of respect for those who've given their lives. It's tragic that today 
the history textbooks are being changed and are being so-called sanitized to be politically correct and to give children of this nation a negative feeling about our country and a little sense of the greatness of our nation's past. And what need we have in our Christian school and other homeschool efforts and so on to give a more accurate assessment that despite our faults and flaws, despite sins of the past like slavery, there has been a great history in this nation of the love of God and of God's mercies upon our land and also of heroic acts by many who have given their lives for this nation. Well, all of this has a parallel in the Christian church. There have been martyrs throughout church history who have given their lives for the well-being of the church of Jesus Christ. And the first New Testament church Christian martyr was, of course, as you know, the man named Stephen, who paid the ultimate price for being a follower of Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to look at this man's life with you and glean a dozen or more lessons. I'll actually, I'll try to number them as I go for you note takers. And hopefully we can all learn from, from Stephen. So uh, I'll just read a few verses right now as our text. Acts 6, 5b, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And then verses 59 and 60 of chapter 7, and they stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So my theme this morning is learning from Stephen. And with God's help, we want to look at him displaying powerful faith in his witness, receiving firm hope in his trial, and manifesting fiery love in his execution. Well, Stephen was chosen as one of seven deacons by the congregation at Jerusalem and ordained by the apostles to serve as the first of these seven deacons of the young New Testament Christian church. Next week, we hope to have installation of office bearers, which is a reflection of this decision when the deacons get, a, get ordained, at least, of this decision made in Acts 6. The need for the office of deacons had arisen out of a problem having to do with distribution of food and other necessities among the poor in the congregation, especially some of the Grecian widows. They were complaining that the apostles were showing favoritism to their Hebrew sisters and neglecting the Grecian women and widows. So they weren't getting their, their fair share. And the apostles recognized that this was a problem. And so they were too busy in prayer and in preaching to, to undertake the resolution of these difficulties. 
So they appointed seven men to the, a new office called the office of deaconry to fulfill uh, this duty as they devoted themselves to their spiritual duties of prayer in preaching. Well, Stephen is particularly standing out, isn't he, among these seven. He's described uh, in a very particular way as an honest man, giving an honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and of wisdom. And we read of him in verses 5 and 8 that he was full of faith and he did great wonders and miracles among the people. And together with Philip, he was also an evangelist. He went around proclaiming, as it were, the gospel in, in, in informal situations, uh, talking to people wherever he could, and following the great example of the great deacon, the Lord Jesus Christ. S- Stephen regarded the distribution of earthly bread as a symbol and preparation for the ministration of the bread from heaven, even the Savior. So this is the first lesson we can learn from Stephen. We learn from Stephen that a godly character, a godly character can make a great difference in the world. Stephen had this honest report. He was known to be a man of integrity. He was full of the Holy Ghost. We heard last week what that means. He was full of faith, doing wonders and miracles among the people. And he was a faithful deacon as well. What an example Stephen was in his entire walk of life. His entire demeanor was one that glorified God. I wonder if our friends, our family, our neighbors, this church the people among whom you, you move in your, in your work life, if they would say that of us, this is an honest man, an honest woman a, of good report, one who fears God and is full of faith and is faithful and evangelizes those around them. This is the way to live a blessed life, to live like, like Stephen. Now, we don't know much about Stephen's background, We do know that he was a Hellenistic Jew. What does that mean? Who are the Hellenists? Well, the term Hellenist comes from the noun Hellas, which means Greece. So you might say a Grecian Jew as well. Hellenism was the philosophy and lifestyle of those who, though not Greeks by birth and nationality, had adopted the Greek language and the Greek culture. So even when many of them returned to Palestine later, they returned their, they kept their Hellenistic way of life. And so what that means was that among the Jews in New Testament times, Two groups developed. The majority were native sons. They were speaking Hebrew or Aramaic. And they were very strongly nationalistic. But there was a minority, a sizable minority, though Jewish 
in an ethnic and religious sense, who had a basically non-Jewish outlook on life. They preferred to speak Greek rather than Hebrew or Aramaic. They had more of an international outlook on life rather than a national outlook confined to, to small Israel. And for that reason, they tended to be a bit more broad-minded, you might say. They were able to look at things from different points of view. And these two groups, already early on in the book of Acts, began to have some conflicts between them. They were at odds with each other on their viewpoints in several areas. And therefore, although they shared the same Old Testament religion, they often met for worship in separate synagogues, one speaking Hebrew, one speaking Greek. Now, when Pentecost happened, as we commemorated last week, many Jews were converted to Christ. And the original church, which was 120 believers, you recall, suddenly received this influx of both Hebrew Jews and Hellenistic Jews. And that began to create certain tensions. Now, it's a testimony to the power of the gospel, that this young church was able to overcome this potentially explosive issue. The Lord mercifully kept the congregation from breaking up into factions and gave wisdom to the leaders so that they appointed these seven deacons to look after the needy. Now, Stephen belonged to this more broad-minded group, this more international-viewing group, the Hellenistic Jews, as also did the other six deacons. So, before his conversion, he had attended one of the synagogues of the Hellenists, and after becoming a believer, he continued to do so for the purpose of witnessing to his former friends and acquaintances. So Stephen's witness was just a bit different from that of the apostles. Men like Peter and James and John were Hebrew Jews, preached the gospel to the native sons of Abraham, pointing out that Jesus was the Messiah sent by God. And of course, in their preaching, they tried to find as many points of contact with the existing Hebrew order as possible. So they went out of their way to honor the Mosaic institutions, the temple ceremonies, and even some of the rituals. But though they were successful in in moving many priests by the work of the Spirit into conversion and into embracing Christianity there were also some dangerous implications in their remaining so Judaistic and bonded to the temple and the old order. The impression that many people had was that Christianity was mostly in addition, just an addition to the existing religion. In other words, there was a danger that with this approach, the new wine 
of the gospel could be poured into the old wineskins of Judaism. And another danger was that people would think the gospel was only for the Jews. When it was Christ's clear command, before he ascended into heaven, bring the gospel to all the nations, which was something that the Hellenistic Jews felt very strongly about. And of course, even later in the book of Acts, you recall that that created more tension when Peter was reluctant to take the gospel to the house of Cornelius. But eventually, of course, that all came to a happy conclusion and there was an agreement at the Senate in Acts 15 that there'd just be a few rituals they would still follow and the rest they would abandon so that the Hellenistic Jews would also feel welcome as full-fledged citizens in the church of Jesus Christ. So Stephen and Philip, to mention just two, they had this Hellenistic point of view. They were looking beyond the borders of Palestine, which gives us a second lesson from the life of of Stephen that we need to learn from. We need to learn from his evangelistic heart. He had a big heart for all the nations, all people groups. He had a Hellenistic vision for the nations, for the world. And you see, that's that's what the leadership of this church wants our church to be, uh, to have a vision for the world. To bring our treasured, biblical, reformed, confessional, experiential truth to the world. Not just through the seminary, but through all the ministries of this church. Because we are responsible, you see, to take the truth of the Bible and to spread it around this globe. We're to be Stephen-like in this way. So this means that Stephen is more clearly believing and acting upon that belief that Christianity is substantially different from Judaism. And this comes out in the open, especially with his attitude towards the temple and everything it represented to the Jews. It's priests, it's altars, it's sacrifices. In Stephen's mind, had had lost value and efficacy because Christ had come. And Christ had torn the temple veil in two. Not the temple of stone was now the house of God, but the body of Christ, made up of believers in Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That is the true temple, the true house of God. And of course, Stephen had a huge impact on Paul, then called Saul. And when Paul was converted, you see, Paul took this further, didn't he? And developed it theologically in his letters and said, no, every believer today, every believer is the temple of God. And the other apostles came in line with that. But it took some time to to really embrace that worldwide uh, New Testament vision of the gospel. Now, meanwhile, Stephen wasn't only in tension with the other church uh, leaders there, a tension that was happily resolved. But the old guard of the Jews that did not believe in Jesus at all, he came in much more trouble, of course, uh, with them. 
It says in verse 9, Acts 6, Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians, and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilician of Asia, disputing with Stephen. You see, they were arguing Christianity is invalid. Judaism is the truth. Judaism is far superior to Christianity. And Stephen was arguing the opposite. Salvation, Stephen is arguing, came not by obedience in the law and observance of rituals, but by faith alone in Christ alone, because Christ is the great fulfiller of the law for His people. So to refuse to receive Christ and to cling to Moses as the foundation of my salvation is to grieve the Holy Spirit, would be Stephen's teaching. And so the enemies of the gospel, these uh, Jews who rejected Christ, they uh, debated, they wanted to debate Stephen. And Stephen won that debate handily. Uh, It says in verse 10, they were not able to resist the wisdom and the Holy Spirit by which he spake. And that brings us to lesson three about Stephen. Stephen has this spirit-given wisdom that is grounded in the gospel, grounded in the pure gospel. And that is what we all need as well. That's where true wisdom comes from, from him whose name is wisdom with a capital W, the Lord Jesus Christ. Wisdom toward God and wisdom about God and wisdom toward men. What a blessing. When a church is filled with such Stephens, men of wisdom. Well, of course, the enemies of Christ, the Jewish enemies of Christ, <laughs> wouldn't agree with that point. And the result is that they decide to get rid of this troublemaker. So they hire false witnesses, just like they did with Jesus. And they accuse Stephen of saying blasphemous things against the temple, against Moses. And the customs they held so dear. And of course that was all wrong. Stephen wasn't speaking against Moses or the temple or the customs. or Well, he was against some of the customs they held so dear that were added to the scriptures. But Stephen was just saying, Christ is come and he's the fulfillment of the temple. And we're in a new age now. But of course they totally rejected that. And so they arrest him. They put him on trial before the Sanhedrin, and they accuse him of stating that Jesus of Nazareth would destroy the temple and change those customs that Moses had delivered to them. Now, all of this, of course, is a result of Stephen preaching Christ to them as the be-all and the end-all of God's salvation. And what this teaches us is that There's really only two religions in the world. There's the one in which Jesus Christ is everything to a sinner. By amazing grace. By God's amazing grace. He is the one who fulfills the law. He's the one who pays for sin. He's the be-all and the end-all. As Paul puts it, Christ is all and in all. And no honor, no glory comes to the believer. There's that religion. Which we embrace still today, of course. And then there's the man-made, man-based, good works religion, which salvation depends upon you fulfilling rituals. It's either 
or, you see. Either you're a Christian and you believe in Christ alone as your Savior, or you belong to some kind of self-willed religion, whether it's pagan, whether it's uh, Judaism, whether it's whatever it is. It's you must do something, and then, well, God might help you. Those are basically the two religions of the world. A formal religion, like most of the Jews practice. And it's still with us today. And Judaism still has it today. It's a kind of self-righteousness with a little bit of God's grace added to it. That's the religion of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Essenes and so on. And today, even in Christianity, it's a religion of, of many who embrace uh, free will as the ground of my salvation, my exercise, my being a good Orthodox church member is another approach to that, you see. And so we learn a fourth lesson from Stephen here, that orthodoxy, even orthodoxy, is never enough for vital living Christianity. Vital Christianity is a personal thing of surrendering my entire life to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what you need. That's what I need. All our life, indeed to all eternity. So, because Stephen had, more than any other preacher at his time, insisted on this radical nature of the gospel, solus Christus, Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, without the works of the law, Stephen received the brunt of all this enmity. They couldn't have him. They had to depose him. They had to get rid of him. Even they had to kill him. His powerful faith, his powerful faith in his witness was too much for the established church. And so they brought him to trial. Which leads us to our second point. There he stands before his accusers. Is he afraid? No. <laughs> You look at verse 15, it's amazing, chapter 6. All that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on Stephen, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. It's astonishing. Astonishing. His face is lit up with the joy of the gospel. So we learn here a sixth lesson from Stephen. We learn from his emphasis on the fear of God as being above the fear of man. When you respond rightly as a true Christian, you, you esteem the value of the smiles of God to be greater than the smiles of men. And the fear of God, the frown of God, to be greater than the frown of men. You, your goal is to please God, you see. You want to live out of gratitude to God for His great deliverance. In Jesus. So Stephen's face reflected the glory of God, the Bible says. The glory of God. Glory, referring to God, means weightiness, the, the treasure, the pleasure, the value, the weighty value of God. God is worth more than anything in this world, my friend. And Stephen feels that. He feels the strength of God's grace as he comes before this formidable Sanhedrin, and his face just shines with the glory of God, like Moses. <laughs> they thought they were following Moses, but 
Moses' face shone when he was in the mount with God. And now Stephen's face has that same resemblance because he's in communion with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's almost ironic, isn't it? They're accusing him of being against Moses, but his face is shining like the face of Moses because he too is in the presence of God. This is the shine, if I may say it this way, the shine of supernatural glory reflected back from the face of the risen Christ upon whom Stephen gazed. Blessed Stephen. But there is his face is shining. And they all saw it. They all saw it. He couldn't help but see it. But they persevered in their enmity. And the high priest said, Are these things so, Stephen? Are these things so? Have you really spoken against Moses and, and the temple and so on? And then Stephen says, Men and brethren. And he gives this 50 plus verse defense of Christianity. His apologetics course for the Sanhedrin. He takes them to seminary for a little while. And the interesting thing about this this 50-some verse testimony is that he doesn't even defend himself. He doesn't say, set me free. This is amazing. He's so concerned about God's glory that he, he just, he's only concerned about giving a good testimony about God. And about Jesus. His purpose is not to seek personal acquittal. But acquittal of the Christian faith against its detractors. He tells them that the whole Mosaic system was preparatory for the full revelation of God in Jesus Christ. He's not against Moses. But Moses is pointing to Christ. And now that the Messiah has come, all these Old Testament types have lost their value and efficacy because they're all fulfilled in Jesus, he tells them. And then he goes on in verse 51, where his speech takes an abrupt turn. And just like Peter on the day of Pentecost, he turns to them and he aims at conviction of their consciences, doesn't he? He says, ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised, in heart and ears, you do always resist the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, so do ye. Well, here we, in this whole section, we learn two more lessons from Stephen. Number, Number seven, we learn from Stephen's ultimate purpose in his apologetics, not to seek his own acquittal but to seek the promotion of the glory of God. What, what a gift that is. When a believer has that, you've got something beyond all value. And then number eight, we learn from Stephen's convicting words of honesty and truth. He was honest with these men. He said, you're resisting. You're resisting what the Holy Spirit is doing. Now, there is, of course, a difference between um, resistible grace and irresistible Grace. Resistible grace is the common grace of the Holy Spirit. It comes to people and, say, brings them under the truth. But you can resist it. And that's what these Sanhedrin members were doing. So in that sense, grace is resistible. But the internal calling, of course, of grace is irresistible. That's what happened to Stephen. He was irresistibly called by the Holy Spirit. 
But you see, here he can say to them, because they're not responding to God, and the Holy Spirit's not working through, he's saying, you are resisting the Holy Ghost, as your fathers did, with all their laws and customs added to the Bible, so do ye. Now this is too much for the for Israel's religious leaders. They get very angry. The Bible says they are cut to the heart, and they gnash on him with their teeth. It means, it just, that's a Hebrew expression. It means they were just filled with rage. They were angry to the core of their being. How dare this young upstart who names the name of a strange religion, Jesus Christ, and him crucify. How dare he challenge them with all their knowledge about the Mosaic law and the temple and the rituals and sacrifices and the 300 or rather 613 extra laws they had added uh, in the intertestamental period. How dare he go against this rich and glorious tradition? So Stephen is aiming at their conviction, but they resist that conviction and they, they turn the tables on him. You see, either when the gospel comes to us, either we will burn with inward conviction that will consume our sins and make us fly to Christ, or else we will burn with enmity against the truths we hear, and perhaps even against the preacher who who exposes our, our shortcomings and our sin. There must always be a victim, either... The preacher is the victim, or the truth is the victim, or, or, or we ourselves are the victim. You either take your wrath out on yourself and on your sins and, and become spiritually alive, or you take your wrath out on the one who points out your sin to you. Well, they chose the latter. They gnashed on him with their teeth. And you see, my friend, if, if you're still unsaved, I'm not saying you reject the ministry uh, outright. I'm not saying you come to this degree of rage. But if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, it is true. You do always resist the Holy Spirit. That's a solemn thing. Because if you keep doing that for the rest of your life, you'll, you'll perish forever. And the Spirit is driven with you. In every sermon, He strives with you. Every sermon, you're pushing Him away, pushing Him away, pushing Him away. Every sermon, you're confirming what Jesus said. You will not come to me that you might have life. How critical this is. That you stop running away from the gospel. That you bow and surrender and turn to this only glorious Savior. Now, when God's people come into great stress, come into great strife, it's common that God gives them extra help, wonderful help. You see that with Stephen here in verse 55, don't you? He being full of the Holy Ghost, looking up steadfastly into heaven, he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. This is amazing. This is amazing. He sees a vision. Today we may see it by faith. John Bunyan said, there's three things the New Testament says about Jesus at the right hand of God in terms of position. First it says he is at the right hand, which means he's accomplished all his mediatorial work for his people. 
second thing is he sits at the right hand, which means he's king. He's in charge of everything. He's sitting there as the one to whom all power is given in heaven and earth. And then Bunyan says, thirdly, he stands. At special times, he stands up. And that's especially when his people are in great need. And he intercedes for them in a drastic way, in an intense way. Father, don't let Stephen succumb to these enemies. That's what's happening here. Stephen sees Jesus arise, as it were, with a vision of faith in heavenly places to defend him, to intercede for him, to take up his cause. It's a glorious thing, if you think about it. He's not in his usual position of sitting, as it were, but he stands up. It's a sign that Jesus completely identifies with his people. And what a glorious thing it is when a child of God may feel the intercessory power of Christ. Even when we come to our wit's end in prayers or, or we come into such need, we can only cry out, Lord, 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 help, help. Jesus stands up and pleads the case of his own and enables them to go forward in his strength. I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. (laughs) Imagine the Sanhedrin hearing that. This man, who is this man who dares to be so fearless? This man who's so full of joy. We're about ready to stone him, and he's full of joy. What a testimony. Saul was standing there as well. That was an important part of what led to Saul's conversion. Saul didn't know anything about this kind of faith. Stephen had something Saul didn't have. So so we learn here, number nine, from Stephen's fearless joy. Fearless joy. Even in the face of death. What a testimony a Christian can be. In the face of death. With fearless joy. Trusting in the Lord. Convicting people. That they have something that the unsaved don't have. Something valuable for this life and a better life to come. So, Stephen gets, and that's, that's our tenth lesson. Stephen learns to draw comfort from the intercessory, sympathetic high priest at the Father's right hand. And I say to you, dear church family, this is one of the greatest comforts God has in store for a child of God. When we may trust and believe that our Savior is interceding for us from moment to moment and that all things work together for good to those that love Him so that no matter what happens our, come, that comes our way, we trust Him, that He's in control. He will do all things right. He will do all things well. This is comfort that goes off the scales of comfort. My sympathizing high priest knows me, feels what I feel. He's afflicted with my afflictions. He intercedes for me. He, he, he's touched with the feeling of my infirmities. Look to heavenly places. No, not for an earthly vision, but look by faith with spiritual eyes to behold the intercessory, sympathetic high priest.
how glorious he is. He's pledged to help you. And he will help you in every trial. Well, Stephen not only had powerful faith and firm hope, but a fiery love, even in his execution. An amazing love. Behold, he says, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Well, here you see lesson number 11 from Stephen. He's got a clear conscience. What a joy it is to have a clear conscience. They gnash at him with their teeth. They're enraged. But Stephen says, my conscience is clear. I see him at the right hand of the Father, interceding for me. I see his glory. I know, I know that I know the truth by the grace of God. His conscience is clear. Even though what they were doing was illegal. They should have had the guilty conscience, you see. Not Stephen. They're trying to guilt trip him. But they are the really guilty ones. They didn't even bother to notify the government of Rome. They were going to stone someone to death. That was against the law. See, a Jewish execution went like this. First, the witnesses faced the accused, proclaimed out loud the crime of the victim. Then following the formal charge, the witnesses, together with the crowd, would take the condemned man to the place of execution. After, they would get permission from the government to do that. Then they would hurl him down violently from a height of about 12 feet or so, and they would cast two large stones on him, one from each witness. And after that, the convict was given a moment to confess his sins and ask for forgiveness. And then the crowd would take up stones and finish the process and kill him. Well, this is how it went with Stephen. Only they didn't report it. They didn't get permission. But Stephen doesn't object to that. He responds with Christ-likeness. He says two things. He, he offers two prayers in their hearing. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And the second one, he says, with a loud voice, so they could all hear it. Exactly how Jesus died. You see how a Christian can live out of what Jesus has done. Into thy hands I commend my spirit, Jesus said when he died. And his first word from the cross was, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. Stephen didn't add the words, for they know not what they do, because they knew very well what they were doing here. They were killing a deacon of the New Testament church. on the grounds of supposed blasphemy. But they were jealous. They were angry. They refused to see the truth. So we learn from Stephen here, in number 12, from his Christ-likeness. He's in the process of dying. They're taking up stones, boys and girls, to kill him. And he responds like Jesus did on the cross. He surrenders everything to Jesus. This is incredible. He sees Jesus. He rests in Jesus. He responds to Jesus with submission. And he prays for his enemies. That's number 13. 
We learn from Stephen how to pray for our enemies. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Exactly what Jesus did. And then Stephen falls asleep. Falls asleep. (laughs) I don't know if, if you've ever read these words and they've ever struck you. Lord, lay not this sin to their charge with a loud voice as the stones are hitting him everywhere and killing him, wounding him, making him fall. And he falls asleep. Falls asleep. He died violently. What does the Bible mean? He falls asleep, boys and girls. When you fall asleep in your bed, you do it very peacefully. This is not a peaceful death. But you see what what Luke is saying, Luke, the author of this book, he's saying when you die in Christ, you are always just falling asleep temporarily, waiting the great day of resurrection because you're at peace with God. Stephen's at peace with God even as the stones are flying. What a way to live. What a way to die. Death for a believer is slipping into the arms of Jesus, into the presence of Jesus, Believers fall into his arms and they open their eyes in glory. So after this brief night of sin and misery, of trials and tribulations, a child of God wakes up in heaven's eternal glory. From stones to glory, from death to life, from troubles and afflictions to peace that passes all understanding. What a glorious thing this is. Stephen is far off, far better off than all his persecutors, even dead than they are alive, because now he's with Jesus forever. Have you ever prayed for your enemies? Have you ever learned that lesson? But also, number 14, have you ever learned from Stephen that God's martyrs fall asleep in Christ no matter how you die? Death isn't easy. Death is painful. It's painful for Stephen. But when you're in Christ, when you're in Christ, you fall asleep in Him. And finally, we learn a last lesson from Stephen, a beautiful lesson. Number 15. His name, Stephen, did you know What it means? It means crown. Crown. Stephen receives a crown of glory. Stephen becomes real Stephen forever as he falls asleep in Jesus. And I'm sure the first thing he does in glory, like all God's people, is to take the crown from off his own head And cast it to the feet of Jesus. Not unto us, O Lord. Not unto us. That's what will happen on the great day. All those crowns will be cast back to Jesus. To thy name be all the honor and all the glory. Because all of this is not about Stephen. It is all about Jesus. He's the Savior. He's the Lord. He's the King. He's the all and in all. And so, yes, Stephen in one way is a hero. But he's a hero only because he's in Christ. Because Christ is the real hero, the supreme hero, the exclusive hero. He's crowned. 
God fulfills his own name in truth in Stephen. So in closing this morning, let me just ask you this question. How do you want to live? The way you really want to live is the way you will live. Do you want to live in this world, this poor, perishing world? Do you want to live by the customs and traditions of men that are added to the Scriptures? Or do you want to live in Christ, in true joy, with a clear conscience, in peace that passes understanding? Do you want to live crowned by grace, ripened for glory? Do you want to live with your eye on eternity, longing to be with Christ forever? Are you going to live for this ugly world, this sinful world, and be a slave to the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eye and the pride of life? There's only two ways to live, remember. By true, vital Christianity in Christ, by grace alone, or by something that you do And somehow you try to justify yourself away from your sin and think somehow you'll be saved. That is no way to live. It's no way to go into the future. I pray that Jesus' prayer and Stephen's prayer, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge, will be true for you and for me as well. That our sins will all be laid to the charge of our substitute, Jesus. He's taken them all, and the work is done, and he offers himself freely to sinners, calling them to repent and to believe. Believe means to surrender everything, to surrender your life at his feet. You see, because if you're not in Jesus, those sins are still on your charge. They're on your debt account. But in Jesus, they are transferred. They're imputed from your account to his. And his righteousness is imputed to you. And you receive a clear conscience. He who knew no sin became sin. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Praise be to God. This is the way to live, and this is the way to die in the blood of Christ through his merits, saved, kept saved by his intercession. You'll never be sorry for surrendering to Jesus Christ by the grace of the Holy Spirit, because then you'll really live, and then you'll know something, something of these 15 marks that you can learn from Stephen. And you, dear believer, pray that God will make you more like Stephen in all these ways. Not to merit anything. Of course not. can never do that anyway. But out of gratitude to God for his salvation and to live for his glory. Ask God for an evangelistic heart that your whole life might be one of honesty of good report, full of faith in the Holy Ghost, that you, like Stephen, might impact others.
Oh, you say, but I'm a nobody. Well, Stephen probably felt he was a nobody too. But God can use nobodies to do great things. We don't read a lot about Stephen in the Bible. But God used Stephen for Saul. Didn't he? What an amazing thing that is. Think of Saul, the apostle to the Gentiles. If Saul hadn't been converted, how many, how many thousands and thousands of people would never have heard the gospel? God can use nobodies, little-known people like Stephen, to do great things through those you influence, those who follow you. I think of Charles Spurgeon. More sermons have been read by Charles Spurgeon than any other preacher in the entire world. He got converted by a man through, through the Spirit blessing, a man's sermon. He didn't even know the name of the preacher. It was a visiting preacher. He never could find out the man's name. This man was not known by hardly anyone. But God used him for the conversion of Charles Spurgeon. It's amazing. You know, I think that a lot when I stand in front of the classroom at the seminary. Is there going to one of these men sitting in front of me? Is there someone who's going to be like, like Calvin or like George Whitfield or be used mightily by God from this seminary? Who will bring the gospel to millions and millions and millions? You never know. Maybe God can use me in some small way to impact someone who's going to be used all over the world. But that's true of you as well. Maybe your testimony, maybe, maybe living like Stephen will impact somebody whom then God will call in wonderful ways to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. So let Stephen encourage us. Stephen is one of the great fruits of Pentecost. Let the spirit of Pentecost encourage you to go forward in the strength of the Lord God, praying, Lord, help me to live like Stephen and to see thy glory and to be spent and to spend myself in evangelizing others for the sake of thy kingdom. Amen. Gracious God, please bless this sermon. Please make us more like Stephen. Please help us to live wholly and solely for Thee. And give us, from Stephen's example, courage to walk fearlessly in the midst of this formidable world with all its temptations, with all its challenges. Oh God, turn us, turn us, we pray, back unto Thee and help us to live solus Christus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.